When we started the practice facility project, uh, that was the first time we worked with Gil in, in the bar. That was their first job. From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. This episode of Frankly Speaking features a reflective conversation with Steve Rabidou, director of golf courses at Wingfoot Golf Club, and a regional diagnostic hotline call with Lee Butler at NC State. But before we get started with today's episode, let me tell you about DryJack specialized turf injection, aeration, and soil modification services. DryJack is a global leader in injection technology, featuring patented vacuum technology that simultaneously aerates and fills holes to the surface with high volumes of sand or amendments. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local DryJack services representative or visit dryjack.com. Every profession, to some measurable degree, is practiced at the highest level from science and medicine to architecture and golf. In the golf course management profession, I'd start with a shout out to those with shoestring budgets and without a bounty of resources that are doing the job every day. We've highlighted some of those superintendents over the years here on Frankly Speaking, but this episode is dedicated to going behind the scenes of a career, a golf course, and the U.S. Open with Steve Rabideau. Stephen Rabideau, Director of Golf Courses at Wingfoot Golf Club. Thank you for joining me, Steve. It's so great. I've been trying to get this with you from, I think, a year or so before the Open because I knew everybody was going to start asking you about, you know, everything that's happened. And and certainly the the way you've shared the stage with Labar and Gil and, and how you've really handled the role of being the superintendent in a pretty ambitious reconstruction effort, renovation effort, restoration effort to get ready for a a major event. So Steve, I, I know you a long time. We known each other since 2000 easy when I used to hang around at Beth page and you were at Wheatley Hills. I'm trying to think, you know, you're a UMass guy, proud UMass alum. And, you know, I have a long history being a URI guy, taking a hard time from the UMass guys. Let me start with asking you, what do you think looking back prepared you for what you just went through? Man, I don't know. How do you prepare for that? I mean, I think probably what prepared me for it is getting a start at a young age and getting thrown into the fire as a interim superintendent at Sea Wayne Club, not knowing anything and just being thrown so much crap that I, you just had to deal with it. I mean, because I know when I got hired at Wayne Foot, I had zero idea that any of these things were going to be taking place. Didn't know that we were going to have an open. I had no idea that we were going to be doing any of the restoration work that we were going to do. That that project just sort of snowballed. So, yeah, I mean, I think just getting thrown a whole bunch of stuff early on, sort so, of said whatever it is, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, and I think uh, it sort of spoke to your personality because, honestly, for the five people that might be listening to this conversation, honestly, frankly speaking, it, it wasn't a good job when you took it. It had been a job that had cycled through a lot of superintendents, good guys recently, big names over the last, you know, it depends on how far back you want to look, but a lot of names have cycled through there. And I'm wondering if your, you know, ability to do that, get tossed in the fire and be able to figure out how to rely on people was one of your strengths. But, you know, you came out of the gate with a lot of agronomic ideas, what you wanted to build. How did you start to imagine what that thing could be? 
you know, there again, it was sort of just trial by error. You know, when we started the practice facility project, uh, that was the first time we worked with Gil in, in Labar. That was their first job. You know, we didn't know he was going to do it, but then we we had to build these four greens, and it was, okay, we're just going to take the pole off, and we're going to build these sand greens and throw the pole on. Having no idea that that would morph into 36 times more in all the greens. So it was just sort of luck at that point. You know, they had had a couple of greens that were, they put the pole back on the sands here. So I just figured, you know, you had to go with it. And it just snowballed. It's just the whole thing just snowballed. So how much of that? Well, first off, there's a piece of this that, you know, you're minimizing, I think, how you guys, you Gil and Labarb developed the system. Because when you're going to do it 36 times, they're going to be different. All of them are a little bit different in way, shape and form. But you're shaping ground, you're putting in drainage, you're putting in sand, you got to get it to the right levels, right? All the fancy stuff you did. You had to have a process, but none of that was possible without having the resources and the support of the club. Can you take a minute with what you're able to tell me? How was the support of the club key in your success in getting these things done as well as making it a really good job? You know, I I think trust is earned, right? You know, so we started on the practice facility project and there was a lot of eyes on us. We were front and center there. I think they were really happy with that. When we pulled that off and we did that, um, that's when Gil really ran with a 36-hole restoration plan. And then when we started on the on the East Course, uh, that front nine, uh, 10 holes, we were not going to rebuild all the greens. So that sort of morphed into, you know, I think it was Fazio and Gray Talk when he was here in 06 uh, during the Open, they, they softened five greens. And we were going to just start out rebuilding two greens. And then I said, well, if we rebuild two greens and then you got five greens that were done already, now we got seven sand USGA greens and now we got a mix and, you know, so let's let's do them all. And then it just morphed into redoing all the greens. But when we started the East, they said, we're not doing the West. So don't even think about it. We're not doing the West. But when we started the East, they were watching us. I mean, they had cameras. They put trail cameras in the trees and were videotaping us to because they didn't know if we could do it or not. You know, we said we were going to scan them and shell them out and change the infrastructure and put the pole back on and put the same contours back on. And, and they really didn't believe us. And I don't blame them. I mean, I hadn't done it yet, you know. But once we did the first 10 holes, and they played on them, then they're like, oh, wow, we want to do this on the West course. So it just sort of took its own life of its own and just blew up, you know? Yeah, and so now you you have this momentum. It's so great when you say things like trust is earned because that's something that doesn't get spoken a lot about, but I'm sure it was the cornerstone. You know, you bring a guy like Wes on and big congrats to Wes, got a job. We'll make sure we get that on tape and everybody, big shout out to the is it the old Oyster Club? What is it, Steve? Oyster Harbors Club down in Cape Cod. Yeah. Oyster Harbors Club. And when I'm here, you say you had to earn trust. I'm thinking the folks I met working for you and Wes at the top that I had a lot of interaction with, there's a lot of trust among the guys and gals you're working with. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's like, hey, we're coming to do this. Because while you're hearing like it morphs, they're like, wait a minute, what the hell? What are we doing Okay, let's go. And next thing you know, Wes is there a decade. So how did you build that trust on the team? Because I imagine, uh, you know, it wasn't so easy early on to find the right kind of people. No, early on was hard. The first couple of years was really hard. You know, you come here, we cobbed together a crew the first year. Some guys stayed on from the previous regime, cobbed a crew together. 
I mean, I remember looking at a couple of greens with you my first year. I lost more grass my first year than I lost in my entire career together, I think. And you want to tell the listeners what I told you? Because yeah, it's always you, my favorite thing you remind me of yeah, when you, we see it. You told me to blow up the fourth green in the middle of the summer. So <laughs> right. that we couldn't do. <laughs> but um, you got it blown up. We got it blown up a few years later. You know, we, we really built from the interns and the interns came on and, and uh, a bunch of early guys got some jobs, you know, Big H and Casey and Luke yeah. and Bill. Those guys went on. Uh, they were all part of the projects on the East early on and built a little bit of the West. But then the nucleus of guys I have now, two of them just left. They've been here since about 16. So they were here. The four ball helped us. We got some guys for the four ball. Some guys were part of the project. You know, then the carrot was the open. So these guys stayed on and it's been nonstop construction because it was the practice facility. It was the East course. It was the West course. Mm-hmm. It was a turf care facility. It was us doing stuff at the bag room and the, and the ball <laughs> shack and, and employee housing. I mean, it's just nonstop, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get to, I mean, you know, to listen to it and then all of a sudden be told, oh, guess what? We're not having the open. We're going to get to that in a minute. But there's a part of me that says in and amongst all that craziness, that wasn't enough craziness for you. You make a decision. Well, I'm going to put the annual bluegrass back on there at the time when our governing bodies of golf were saying, oh, we got to be bent grass. Oh, we got to be bent grass. And so I know from speaking to you and seeing the place over the years, watching you, you know, with your hand on it. Obviously, this has turned out to be the wildly successful choice, as we all saw during the Open. You, you you don't get the crap the poor guys in the Pacific get for their annual bluegrass out there. And that's another topic. But what about when you looked people in the face or did you have to tell anybody, all right, we're going to put annual bluegrass on there at a time when everybody else was saying, yeah, you should probably go to bankrupt. Yeah, no, there was a lot of people that... um you know, or knew we were doing the uh, restoration and, and, you know, they all assumed that we were going to be doing putting bent grass on. And then when word got out, they called up and go, you're, you're, you're putting bent grass on, right? I'm like, no, we're putting a pole back on, you know, I mean, even the USGA, you know, and I was like, no, listen, I guess if you're growing, building a golf course and growing it in, you're going to go bent grass. I mean, I, I think it's, and you didn't, why tell let, let everybody hear what your thought was here. Well, listen, I think we're, we're, we're POA here, right? We're POA. We have great POA. We play winter golf here. So we got courses open year round. We get a lot of play. It's native everywhere here. POA is it's a hundred year old golf course almost. It's everywhere. I think it's, you take away the winter where they say it's great for winter kill and I got nurseries to cover that. I think it'd be, it's better on everything. Where? Bentgrass is awful on where and traffic. Where is the big issue? How many rounds are they doing on these, on these greens, Steve? Well, we do 20, 22,000 rounds a year, but we also have two caddies in every group. And you know them, they're like robots. They walk in the same damn place all the time. So, you know, so that that throws it up to 30-something thousand rounds with two caddies in every group, right? Per course. Yeah. And then and then bentgrass takes a lot of work to get it good. Poem man, you cut it, you roll it. It's it's dense. It's upright. It's I think it's the best putting service you can get, hands down. You're not going to get an argument from this old poet guy here. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to come into my discipline after Vargas was able to get the situation with Couch and the old pathologist about POA, that if you can manage the summer stress, if you're playing a lot of your golf when it's cold temperatures, they've turned the modern bent grasses a lot of times into warm season grasses. They grow great in the summer, but if you're doing a lot of your rounds, as I know you do, when the bent grass really isn't very actively growing, it's a different animal. Now, obviously, 
you were able to produce spectacular. We're going to fast forward all the way to the end of the story, Steve. And you're able to produce these really spectacular playing surfaces with this grass and with this team of people that you built. So let's start with the people and say, okay, we're not doing it. <laughs> Sorry, we got to cancel this thing. Uh, and I remember visiting with you, uh, you know, in the summertime, we came down properly socially distant and with masks and everything and got around. And it was a pretty rough go for you early on. Tell us a little bit about the disappointment and also sort of how you felt for the guys. Yeah, you know, listen, I think I felt worse for the guys. Obviously, I, I always let down. But when you have guys that, you know, I have the chance if I want to be here to potentially host another U.S. Open. The guys that were working here, they were working towards that. They were working for that. That was going to be their carrot. They were going to take that and then hopefully catapult them on to bigger and better. And they had sacrificed for that for years and passed up on jobs. You know, it's just so unfortunate. Our highs and lows this year were, we thought for a month, we didn't even know if we we're going to have it. And, you know, I was told one weekend that it was, that it was going to be moved to the West Coast. <laughs> and, you know, then it was like, I remember just sitting outside my shop all by myself, just huffing down a couple of cigars. And I was just like, this thing's leaving. You know, we just worked nine years for this. I'm like, then the British Open thing and then the British Open pulled out and, the, you know, then we were able to get it. But then it was OK, we have it now. It moves to September, which is OK. Then it was, what are we going to do with fans, you know? And so it was just one more thing after another. And we we're hoping for fans. And then it was, we're going to have reduced fans. And then it was no fans. And then it was no fans, no wing foot members, no nothing. So we couldn't even have, you know, the guys couldn't even have their, their mother or their father or their brother or girlfriend here. So it was like a bubble and nothing. And it was, so trying to motivate and keep everybody's morale was, was hard this year, you know? Yeah. Well, you pulled off something pretty cool. And that's to get the barstool guys in there. And I got to say, having been a part of many of those teams that have put on major championships, you and I have shared a couple of them at Beth Page. That's a camaraderie and, and a sort of thing that it's really the only sort of team. I don't play any other team sports. That's the only sort of real team feeling I get anymore uh, many times. Uh, how did that barstool thing come about and how much fun was that? You know, it, the guys were here for media day and Riggs and uh, them and I had um, gotten to know them a little bit. I did a podcast with them a few years back when we were doing the construction and they um, were here for media day. And then they reached out and they asked if, if we were still here later at night. And we were we had worked late. We were down the shop and they all came down, you know, Frankie and Lurch and, and Riggs they all came down and it was a couple other guys. And, you know, they had a beer. We were sitting down here. And they saw the, the new turf care facility and like a light bulb went off in their head in that they were thinking like hard knocks of football. All, I think all the golf they play and all the stuff they do, they're playing it. They've never sort of been behind the scenes of it. And I think that's when their light bulb went off. I said, wow, this would be great to, to do a little piece on what goes into it. And, you know, my guys are all big uh, Barstool guys. And, you know, you know, with the championships, there's all this buzz and all this other stuff around with it. We had none of that this year. Right. We weren't able to have any of it. So I think that was something that gave a little buzz to my guys. Anything we could do to try to get some morale this summer. And because it was a long year, you yeah. move a championship from from June to September. Man, it, it was a long summer of keeping that place the way we did. And, and the hours were crazy. So, I mean, if I start to sit here for a second, Steve, as we wrap up and start to talk about the grasses, I think about our pal Dan Cunningham at Yankee Stadium who has been at this for 30 years with the Yanks. And of course it's soccer now and football and all the other stuff they do there. And he just will describe it sometimes as one long day. 
It just yep. it started 12, however many years ago, you guys fixed that practice facility. And it's been, you know, it's one long day. Now, at the end of the day, what had to make it great, and certainly did from my perspective, that you were under serious concerns about light restrictions, which is the first thing I thought. They got to get guys through that golf course the first night of the tournament. What I liked is that you got this really hard golf course that you could make into something that the best guys are going to shoot plus numbers. But on another day, you can make it that it's a test where it could even be fun to play. Wow, look at that score. The thing corrected itself once you got down to a field of players, you could get in under the light. But that's got to be neat. Even though I know there was this, oh, we always want to make it brutal on everybody. The USGA knows that. But what I see as a scientist who studies you guys and the land, your ability to do this with a golf course to me is the coolest thing. Not how how high the numbers are. How cool is that to be able to do it in a way that you can make it the way you want it? Tell me a little bit about what that felt like. Yeah, you know, listen, on Thursday, I I mean, our goal all summer long was, I think one of the things that motivated us, and I tried to motivate the guys with it was just, Hey, let's make this the hardest golf course we can and thick rough and this and that. And you know, that was something that was sort of something that we otherwise, otherwise, you gotta listen to Courier for the rest of your life. Exactly. Who wants to listen to Courier for the last uh, rest of your no, life? No, not at all. And I will. <laughs> but you know, you're right. You know, they they on Thursday, they um, you know, some of the pins weren't easier, and you know, that we use that back pin on one on one west, sort of in that in that bowl. And we got a great old photo of that, uh, you know, in a, in a previous open of, of a, a whole location back there. But these guys that hit the right shots in in the greens, you know, they're they're tilted and stuff, and and it kicked some of those balls, and it was gettable on Thursday. They made a lot of putts. The fairways are firm, so the guys that were hitting the ball and hitting it good, uh, no win. Um, they they scored that day. And the turf, it looked like you know, I'm looking at it, and you know, having walked on it with you over the years, not as obviously anywhere near what you walk on it, but. It looked like you had some pretty healthy plants out there, especially what I know a lot of the concern is the rough growing Kentucky bluegrass through the year in your neck of the woods in the warmest, driest summer we've had in 150 years, trying to keep bluegrass rough alive in and amongst trees. Yeah, that to me had to be what was keeping you up more than the putting greens. Yeah, listen, I mean, because the green season fairways, we do every year, right? I mean, that's what we do at a place like this. And, and you know, we're the same heights, cutting heights, day in and day out as we are for this year that we were last year for the Open. Yeah. But it was a rough, right? We have water issues. So, you know, we had to, you know, we don't have good water source. We have to buy water and, you know, keeping that rough. And then you think about it, not only was it keeping the rough on the West course, but now we had to keep some of the rough on the East course because there was no tents and we were going to be seen worldwide and trying to keep everything looking good. So, yeah, it was a lot of syringing the rough and keeping the rough good and spraying it and spoon-feeding it and keeping it good. And so looking back as we wrap up, you got to feel pretty good that you made a lot of good choices. You know, I haven't done anything like this, but my wife and I built a house. And we move in the house, you live in it for a little bit. It's like, yeah, could have done this, could have done that. I'm trying to imagine there might be a few little things you could or couldn't have done but certainly as it presented in September, which is wasn't what you were expecting, you had to be, you know, 98% thrilled with how the surfaces and the facility uh, performed through that event. 100%. You know, you look back at it and, and you look back and say, well, you know, what could we have done differently? There's so many of those variables out of your hand. 
out of your control, right? You know, you go back and think the wind is different in September than it is in June. So some of those holes that those guys were destroying, like nine west, you know, we usually have a south southwest wind in June. We had a north northwest prevailing wind in September. It's about when it switches. So you get some of these holes that were downwind. You know, the golf course, the playing surfaces, I thought were right where we wanted them. You know, we we said they would get firmer and every day. And, you know, it's funny when you listen to these guys talk about firmness and commentators on TV, they always say, that, you know, it's got to firm up. I wanted to shoot myself because, <laughs> you know, they talk about these guys hitting wedges into a green thinking they're going to bounce forward. But when the greens are all tilted from back to front, how do you bounce something forward on that? Unless it's like really concrete, you know, <laughs> but I, I think everything was where we wanted it. You know, I don't know what else we could have really done. Um, super happy with the guys and what they did all summer long, you know? I mean, it's just so much to be proud of. And it's so great that we got to celebrate it, even in that particular way where, you know, you had this guy who's a data wonk, what I think represents a, a real shift in golf, like, uh, you know, Tiger was a shift to athleticism to a certain extent. And you see the Brooks Kepkas and a lot of athletes in it. And then, you know, you got the field guys, the Dustin Johnson's, maybe the Justin Thomas's. And then you got the data guys like this guy and this other guy, Matthew McNeely or something. There's going to be a whole slew of those guys. The fact that they got to think their way around a classic joint like Wingfoot, Really had to be, I don't know anything about architecture. I'm going to have another conversation with uh, Mr. Hans later today, but I'll tell you, it certainly looked like you had to think your way around it, even though he was bombing it. He seemed like he knew exactly what he needed to do. Yeah. He said, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to bomb it. And he said that before and he got there and he bombed it and he made a lot of great recovery shots out of the rough and he made a lot of putts too. So, you know, I, I take that as a compliment because he made so many putts. I mean, he made lots of putts. All right. Listen, long distance. Yeah. Let me let you, let me, I'm going to get you out of here on this because this will get it stirred up for the, the next time we talk or when I get a Pacific superintendent, we get Macintosh on here from Tory Pines. How come those guys get beat up about their POA out there and you don't hear the same from not just yours? I mean, they play on a lot of POA when they come east. What do you think is the nature of that? You know, I, I don't know because I didn't listen to a lot of the I mean, I listened to a, a bunch of TV coverage. I didn't hear them talk about POA one time. For you, not for once. No, not once. I think they all thought it was bent grass. I do too. And <laughs> I, I don't know why I was mentally preparing myself for the barrage on the pole and how bad of a putting surface it was. I don't know. But you, you know, you also don't hear it at Shinnecock. You also don't hear it at, on the black. You don't hear it at other top places that have POA on their greens. They don't shut up about it out West. My theory is right now, those are small greens, POA greens that they're playing on. The traffic is very focused uh, on those Poe greens, like you said, with the caddies, you know, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, they keep the yep. cup in the same place. You got the amateurs with the caddies. You probably got how many rounds before they get on them every day. So I'm thinking it has much to do with that, but I'm with you. Poe is a wear-tolerant surface, and I don't think your play is going down at Wingfoot. I don't think people really understand what kind of a golf factory that place is. So as you wrap up, I heard you intimate to it. You're happy there. You really like it there. The membership and the way you're able to have your new facility and your team is exactly dialed in the way you like it. 
Yeah, you know, we got brand new maintenance facility, turf care facility, uh, both golf courses are redone. They're members, right? They're golfers, right? They want right. what they want and and they have a very bold vision and mission statement. They want to be one of the finest golf clubs uh in the world. Okay. So we know that. So that's what we strive to every day, you know, and to member guests every day here. So that's right. And I'm still motivated to do it that's so great it's so, steve and it's so great to chat with you i know any of this reflection that brings attention to yourself is not easy for you to do and i appreciate you taking the time and they're just listening to our voices not seeing our faces and it's so great to see you thanks for taking the time to join me and a big big congratulations on pulling this off brother well done thanks my man Thank all right you. steve later buddy Steve Rabideau, director of golf courses at Wingfoot Golf Club and proud UMass alum. We'll be right back with the Southeast Diagnostic Hotline call with Lee Butler at NC State. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speak. The Plant Food Company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1944 by Edward Platts, began formulating liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities such as Rutgers in New Jersey found plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose, performing equally to most fungicide programs. These are products built for maximizing playability. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. So glad that you took the time to join me. Hope that things are getting somewhere closer to what we feel like might allow for normal human interaction again, Lee. But I'm sure to start off with, Let's talk about the, the big boom in golf. Did you experience in your interactions, because I know you're out and about and you get samples in the lab, did you experience the big surge down there that the rest of the country experienced in golf participation? Yeah, I think every single golf course superintendent I spoke with, rounds were up. That was a very common theme for everybody. Did you there Despite the rainy weather. Okay, so we got two things. One is, how much did participation lead to maybe some more problems that were compounded by, like, it didn't stop raining? I think Brian Styler said you got, like, 80 inches of rain uh, in some places. So let's start with the weather. How much do you think the excessive rainfall played into at least the root pathogen problems that you guys saw a lot of? Yeah, I, I think it played the... the primary role, honestly. When, when you look at the two top diseases for Bent and Bermuda, they're both soil-borne. Pythium root rot was number one, as always, on creeping bent grass. It was number two on Bermuda grass, which kind of keeps making its way up the list, uh, but it was no shock that it made it to number two last year. And it, all, it was almost number one behind take-all root rot. So a lot of soil-borne issues, which is not a surprise at all. Is there any way this is associated with poor drainage or was it just excessive rainfall? I, it could be both. I mean, I definitely deal with golf courses that, that have inadequate or old uh, drainage or the greens are really old and the organic matter is really high. So the surface drainage, you know, just stays that soppy sponge. The, the roots can't grow. You see a lot of black layer. You know, you get a lot of abiotic issues there, but definitely opens the door up and makes things like root rot more severe. 
uh, even like in Dragnos, fungi I love water. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that that is for sure. And so what I'm wondering is the other side of this. Okay, so you had weather. And if you didn't have good infrastructure for drainage, obviously your roots are lacking oxygen. But what about the 30 to 40% of the samples you get, Lee, that you can't find a pathogen for? Can you talk a little bit about, let's start out with the Bempoa. And again, you were closed uh, early for a little bit of a window, but then it looked like they surged in the summer months. How much of what you saw was related to maybe uh, just worn out? I, I would say probably like 35 to 40% when we can't find any pathogens. I mean, it could be that it was a disease and, and they've suppressed it with the fungicides. Uh, but I think a lot of these cases, it never had anything to do with the disease in the first place. It was the excessive moisture, the high traffic, folks maybe not getting applications out at optimal times because they're yielding to play, things like that. At, at you know, It depends on what level of course you're talking, but that I, I would say 35 to 40% for sure. That last point is uh, very well taken. Uh, a lot of sprays got missed because they just didn't have the workforce or the window to get it done. That's And of course, that's going to be an even bigger deal when it comes to the soil pathogens, right? Because of the preventative sprays that you often require. And I guess early on, we did talk about this. The take-all root rot is really a growing problem in your Bermuda grass greens. We talked a little bit about it. Is it related to the same things the Pythium root rot is related to, just poor soil environments, or is there something else going on with the take-off problem? Uh, that's hard to say because we see it on all ages of greens. You know, I wouldn't say it's exclusive to old, poor draining greens by any means, but definitely there has to be some commonality there. But probably the bigger issue we saw with those two, back to the rainfall again, not to keep beating that, but uh, not only did, did folks have a hard time getting those apps out, when they did get them out, they did not want to water them in because everything was so dang wet to begin with. Uh, so they're leaning on us to want to know, well, what if we don't water in? What if we wait to water in? And we do have some research to you know, give better guesses at that. You know, optimal, it's better to do it right away. Uh, but, you know, if you have to wait till that later that night, that's fine. It does help somewhat. I mean, that's not as good as right away. But that, that's where people found themselves in between that rock and hard place was they're already... <laughs> flooded in the fairways and everywhere and you, you know you want me to water it in yeah man i, I get it it's, it's well <laughs> and i'm with you 100 percent. and i gotta tell you you're exactly right when you said best guess that's exactly what i thought you guys know more than anybody about this short of the wedding agent guys who look at movement through the soils but in general we've not really paid attention to that aspect of this. I remember, I'm old enough to remember in the early summer patch days when Toro first invented the water injection, the hydrojack. And Bruce Clark would say, hey, that's a good way to get the fungicide down where the organism is. And you're right. The, I wonder about spraying at higher volume. Is there a medium here where we can say, listen, I know you can't water, but you want to spray at one gallon. Can you spray at three gallons and maybe just spray these some areas? Now, you're making more trips when you spray out there like that, but what are your thoughts on increasing spray volume as an aspect of this? Yeah, so I would just say set the baseline. We prefer to be at two gallons at a minimum for anything disease-related. If you go up from there, it's, it's more mixing, just like you said. We've done research on that, and you got to get up to like four or five gallons of water per carrier as a carrier volume to, to somewhat get close to the eighth of an inch watering in. And yeah, yeah. I just like watering in better. You know, the other thing is just sending the weight of that sprayer across a wet green. You know, not everybody has the convenience of a 
large staff with spray hawks, you know. That's and, right. So well put. Now listen, let's start talking about this year now. And when I look at the spring leaf index and I looked at some temperatures through the southeast, there's a gradient where there's a cold spot right in the middle, a little warm to the north, certainly warm to the south. But it looks like the Carolinas are right in the heart of that cold spot. The first thing I think is, well, if I got Benpoa greens, I'm probably feeling okay about it. But if I got ultra dwarf greens, oof, and they're getting played on, and I don't think guys are overseeding them anymore, I'm wondering what you're seeing in some of these early transitions. Uh, that's a really good point. So for the bent grass folks, they're doing fine. Most of the bent grass folks in our area are, are about to aerify. So uh, their, their first aerification is about to deploy. They're all excited. They love it. They love it. They're, they're happy right now. <laughs> There's nothing like driving a piece of metal in the ground. I, I There must be this enormously satisfying experience that occurs uh, when it happens. So the bent and pole guys are good. They're good. So And then when you talk to the Bermuda folks, you know, especially when you talk here in the in the Carolinas where you have people who have managed both Bent and Bermuda, and you talk to the Bermuda guys right now, and they say, you know, February, March to me is what July and August used to be to me with Bent grass. So, you know, I feel like I'm at my weakest point right now. You know, they're begging for sunshine and 80 plus. They want heat and sun as fast as they can get it. But, they, you know, they are starting to come to life. You know, I just walked our research plots yesterday in our champion Bermuda grass is just barely greening up. Uh, and we do cover, but it's just barely greening up. The zoysia is greener than the Bermuda, but uh, back to the Bermuda, now that they are starting to green up a little bit, things like spring dead spot are showing up, even symptoms from take-all root rot. So, you know, they, they had damage last summer, last fall, may not have completely realized it, uh, and it weakened them through the winter. And as they're greening up, we're starting to see these white patches everywhere. So I've been getting a lot of samples of that just because they're coming to life and uh, scars are showing, so to speak, from, from what happened last year. I wonder always about, you know, as we stretch these ultra dwarfs further north, like we used to do with the bent grasses further south, you know, you guys are in that area where it's tricky all the time. I'm wondering about what the fall was like for the warm season grasses. Did they get shut down a little early? Did they have a prolonged fall? And how much does that impact uh, the sort of cold snap that you're having now? What happened last fall? Yeah, I'll say it was pretty normal as far as temperatures go. It was more about the rainfall. Through the winter, we didn't cover any more or less. It was a pretty normal winter. I haven't looked at the numbers, but it felt like it was not all that cold. I know we've had spells, but nothing. We never really had like a a week of in the teens or anything like right. that. So none of those big scares. The thing that we've seen the most with the Bermuda grass folks <laughs> back to take all root rot is they did get their applications out. But with that, all that rainfall, when you start looking at the half-life of these products in anaerobic conditions, it goes down really quick, right? So if a product maybe has a half-life of, I'm just making up 30 days, you get it in a, an anaerobic condition where it stays wet, you know, it may only be five to 10 days, right? I mean, it gets drastically cut. So when these guys have these applications in a program and you're in a very wet period, which most of us had, those products weren't lasting as long as they thought. And they had weak spots and gaps. Uh, and that's where we're seeing people who are choosing great products. Uh, it's just the weather conditions, you know, they're not getting the results that they, that they should have gotten in a drier, normal fall, if that makes sense. Is anybody trying to play on these ultra dwarf greens early down there? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they never stop. They never stop. 
Yeah, except for when it's too cold, which is rare, it's wide open. So what are you telling guys that have had serious root problems? Uh, it's not like this grass just grows quickly overnight. Are we talking about a lot of regrassing, sodding, patching sort of stuff moving forward? I don't think it'll be that bad. I've, I've never seen take all do that much damage as far as, aside from spring dead spot, spring dead spot is the most devastating, right? And and then if you want to talk about winter kill, but if, if you got covers, people usually come out just fine. I don't think anybody's going to have to regrass, but they may have some weak areas that are already, <laughs> the trees need to be cut down in the first place, but they're, they're in shady, or, you know, whatever. Those areas may need a little more TLC to push them to where they want them to be, but, you know, I don't, I don't see anything drastic on, on putting surfaces. That's good. And so you're heading into what's an already busy season. You don't think guys, I mean, the Bermuda grass guys are probably struggling to get going, but it's been cloudy and it's not looking like you're getting any sunshine and heat anytime soon. So, you know, what do you tell guys when they're facing, you know, knowing you can't get regrowth? Because this is an issue, even us up north. I mean, they're just getting out there trying and they're wearing it out already. What are you telling guys about how to avoid some problems when you know they're under the gun like this? Go home, go turkey hunting, be patient. That's 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 the best advice. <laughs> so listen, uh, before I let you go, you know, I want to draw attention to make sure everybody that's listening knows, you know, you've got these wonderful summaries of the data that comes back to the lab, uh, both last year's summary and you did a 10 year really nice regional summary in North Carolina. And again, so people know about half or more of all your samples come from out of the state of North Carolina. Right. So you Correct. certainly and the southeast only is like 50, 50, 60% most of the time. So you you get samples and get to see things from a wide range of places. So I think, you know, that's good to know. The one question I'm going to ask you, because it's going to get me in a little bit of trouble before I let you go, is the variety stuff that you put there, the kind of grasses they grow, the varieties bent that you see. I think you were really clear to say, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean these grasses, you know, have these problems. Correct. It's a nature of sort of, where they're planted and how they're planted. You didn't necessarily think there was any rhyme or reason to what you saw. And, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, back in the day when we had Crenshaw bent grass, which was <laughs> you know good for some people, but ideal for pathologists who wanted to do dollar spot research, but it had yep. not a lot of use beyond that. You really don't think there is, have you ever seen much in there related to either bent varieties or, or Bermuda grass varieties? No, nothing that I've seen. And I, I've looked at that out of curiosity, but I, I can never come up with anything that really says, whoa, look at this one. Not really. So has the state of North Carolina recovered from this horrendous basketball season uh, you guys have had to endure? <laughs> we're still in the NIT, so we're the only team left playing in the state, which, which <laughs> is sad. Yeah. All right, Lee, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. It's actually an added bonus to see you. Uh, it's it's nice to see you. And I heard that you're good pals with Lee Miller. So yep. we'll do a shout out to our mutual friend, Lee Miller. Uh, from the both of us, this is Frank and Lee speaking. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lee. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Big thanks to Lee Butler, Extension Coordinator and Diagnostician at NC State University. And of course, to Steve Rabideau, Director of Golf Courses from Wingfoot Golf Club. 
Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents for 40 years. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.